A quick note about this interview. The opinions in this podcast episode are solely those of Dr. Ari Graf and are not on behalf of the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab. Pain is not just a physical experience. It's also a cognitive experience, emotional, spiritual. So like we know now from research that our emotions can influence the severity of pain. So negative emotions can heighten, like worsen our experience of pain and positive emotions can improve it. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graf. Today we're continuing our season about mental health. Our guest is Dr. Ari Graf, a psychologist at the Shirley Ryan Ability Lab, a nationally ranked rehabilitation research hospital based in Chicago. Patients come to Shirley Ryan to recover from severe illnesses and injuries. Ari's job is to help patients mentally heal from the emotional trauma that comes along with being damaged physically. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graff. P-I-N-K-E-R-T dot com. I am honored to be with Ari Graf, clinical psychologist and neuropsychologist, and he's also my brother. Welcome to the show, Ari. Thanks for having me. This is a perfect fit for the season we've been doing about mental health. Ari has been in the mental health business for 14 years. He's in a a very relevant place for talking to our audience because he works with people who have been injured on the job, suffered trauma, and he sees all kinds of patients. So first, Ari, just give us the brief scoop. What do you do? What You have several jobs. One of the things we're going to be focusing on is your work at Shirley Ryan Ability Lab in Chicago. But give us a brief overview of what you do. Sure. Well, I've been a psychologist uh, practicing for 14 years. I've been, you know, including grad school in the business for about 20 years. And I have a private practice. I've mainly done neuropsychology, so evaluating kids and adults for ADHD, learning problems, autism spectrum. Uh, And now I'm doing more therapy with adults. And then in this other job, I've been at Shirley Ryan for about 11 years. I'm working with patients with strokes, brain injuries, spinal cord injuries, so severe neurological conditions, orthopedic conditions, so people who've had amputations. 
Okay. So yeah, just give me a brief description of Shirley Ryan, where you work. Well, I want to just add that um, my opinions reflect my own, so I don't speak for the hospital. So I'm the psychologist at a large day rehab clinic, the Streeterville Clinic. So uh, it's outpatient therapies. So we're talking about physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy. Um, but it's the most intensive rehab, really, that you can get as an outpatient. So these are people at home, but they're they're still usually recovering from some kind of major medical problem. And you used to treat the inpatients as well. That's right. I, I worked on inpatient for several years. Uh, so is that even more intense or it kind of goes back and forth? Well, it, it can be more intense because oftentimes people are have just had a very recent uh, injury or, or medical problem come up. Um, they might be more impaired at that point and more distressed. But there's just different issues when people are, are back home. Interesting. Not everybody who's in Shirley Ryan sees you. It's only certain people who have identified that they have a defined need. Well, I probably see at least half of the patients at the clinic. And, you know, it's a, it's a big clinic. There's, I think, approximately like 150 patients attending the clinic throughout the week now. So I might see about half of them at least once. And then some people I'll follow up with during their time there. You know, they're, they may request seeing the psychologist, but they're usually referred by their rehab team or their physician. Hmm. How often do they not want to see you and they're just like, I don't need this? Well, that's a good question. I, I mean, it's a, it's a diver, very diverse set of patients. So some of the patients are used to seeing a therapist or talking to a mental health person. And a lot of patients have never interacted with a mental health person. So I might be the very first uh, mental health person that they've ever interacted with. And so, and they're usually not expecting it as a part of the, their rehab experience because they're, they're mainly there for physical therapy, occupational speech therapy. So, you know, oftentimes I'm having to explain what my role is and, and how I might be helpful. And how long are you seeing one person? An hour? Yeah, about an hour. You've been in therapy before. I've been in therapy before. I mean, we all know that, you know, it's a, it's a long process. How much impact can you make seeing people once or twice? It's a real good question. And I think as somebody who's had long-term therapy, who, you know, where you're going for more than a year, you know, I see the value in that. And I didn't really understand the value of just short-term therapy and how that can be helpful. But um, there's a, actually a lot you can do even in one session in terms of uh, making sure people feel understood, that mm -hmm. you understand what they're going through at that point in their recovery from, from whatever their, their thing is, helping them understand what the recovery process is like, what to expect from rehab. So a lot of it is making people more aware of what's going on with themselves. That's right. So I really have to understand, you know, how does a stroke affect a person's cognitive functioning, like their memory, their attention, you know, the type of stroke, or how might it affect uh, their emotional functioning? I mean, that's just a, a stroke. 
Right. I know. It To me, it's mind boggling how like somebody could have a stroke or just get over COVID or get an injury on the job and maybe they are physically injured and going to be on disability forever. You're, you're probably just the start, right? On their psychological recovery. That's going to vary. I mean, yeah, the bulk of the patients, there's some kind of new condition that they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's plenty of patients that have had their condition for many years, like somebody with multiple sclerosis might be there who could have had it for 30 years, but they've had an exacerbation of it or, you know, worsening of symptoms. And they're at a point where they need this kind of intensive rehab. So they might have had mild symptoms up until then, but now they have greater limitations. And so they're having to cope with something new. Um, So people's conditions can change over time. So it's complex. It's very complex. And, you know, you told me before that, you know, one of the main challenges you're dealing with is people feel like they don't have control of themselves. Yeah, I think that's uh, a common theme. And even people who who aren't in rehab, I think, can have issues around control. But But yeah, if you've become disabled in some way or limited in some way, it's disempowering. And your whole sense of control over your life can be, you know, thrown out of whack. And, and that's, that's a lot to adjust to. And some people are going to get that control back. They're going to get their abilities back in full. And other people could have some lasting disability. And, and part of what they have to cope with at the point in time they're seeing me is the uncertainty about what their recovery is like, because nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody can tell them exactly how their recovery is going to go. So that's something that people have to cope with in itself is, is that uncertainty. Right. And so you have various methods that you give people to cope, like mindfulness, meditation. Can you describe some of the things that you do to give people something after they're done with your their session with you well i think this is kind of the model that i use for most patients in terms of breaking down how to cope with their condition helping people sort out what are the aspects of their recovery and their rehab that they have some control over and and which aspects do they not have much control over because because sometimes people will focus on parts of their recovery that they don't have much control over. And that's wasted energy in a lot of ways. I mean, to me, that's just something that like could help anybody. It's just, I mean, it's just that is like on a crazy intense level. But I think we all feel that way. Yeah. But I, I, I think when you're going through a medical crisis or, you know, something that is this challenging, you know, it's, it's helpful to, to know what to focus on. So I, I'm always, or very often encouraging people to focus on things like your diet, your sleep, your ability to manage stress, understanding what your condition and limitations are, understanding what the rehab process is, asking questions to your doctors and your providers telling them what your goals are, taking your medications and following doctor's recommendations, but not doing it blindly, you know, making sure that you tell them how it's it's feeling to take a medication or if there's side effects. So really being an active patient, being a self-advocate, and then, you know, doing intensive therapies if they're 
at this clinic, you're getting about the most intensive therapies you can get. So that alone is, is something that they have going for them. And then figuring out how can I put my full effort in? Uh, but there's, there's other aspects of recovery that you don't have much control over, like um, with any kind of stroke or injury to the brain, you know, the, the brain needs time to recover. There's different chemical processes that are happening. You know, the research suggests that the bulk of the natural recovery is going to happen in that first six months to a year. But that's, I mean, even that is not set in stone. But some people expect to recover in a month, but their brain is still healing. So part of my job is just educate them on what to expect because you know you might have recovered a lot but your brain might still be healing and there you just might have to accept parts of the recovery process how do you make somebody accept that i don't know if you can make someone accept anything i think it's guiding someone into acceptance i mean if you tell somebody well you need to accept that it's going to take you a while for your brain to recover it's kind of like when you tell somebody relax I'm not putting that, putting it in those terms, you know, it's more educating them on what's typical. I see. So they feel, so they, so they can relate and they feel like they're normal and. That's right. So it's normal to be frustrated and feel like the recovery process is long and slow. Nobody has a good frame of reference on what it's like to recover from a stroke and the stroke recovery time is different for different people and it's going to depend on different variables like you know age different aspects of your health you know personality and drive you know so there's all kinds of of variables involved so it wouldn't be fair to give someone a real fixed idea about what the recovery process is like so you want to convey hope and instill hope in people but also help them have a realistic idea about what to expect. Um, Let's talk about some of the stuff people hurt on the job, things they're dealing with, you know, anger at their employers, pain, anxiety. What do you what are what are your methods um, to help people cope with that? Pretty similar to what you've been talking about. Well, people who've been injured on the job. uh, Yeah, I think there's some particular things about that. but it, it's going to depend on, yeah, your relationship with your employer. If you've been injured on the job, you're, uh, you might have anxiety about going back to work right. in that environment. Um, so what, do, what are some of the things that happen then to get people back to work? Well, you want to help them have the best recovery they can. You want to help them process feelings they might have had about like how they were injured um, some people might blame themselves or blame other people. So sorting that out. Tell me a little bit about what you're seeing with COVID. The people that have had very difficult times with COVID-19. That was something that we had talked about in the past. I, I think everybody has so many mixed experiences of what it's like having it. And you don't always hear about what it's like for people afterward. I think that's a good point. We tend to hear about like case numbers and deaths, but yeah, what I see is uh, patients who've ha- who've had severe cases of of COVID nineteen. So, okay, so describe what that means. Severe. Well, they may have been on a ventilator for a month or two, for example. You know, and, and there's different medical problems that can result from that. 
some some people are are very deconditioned their body's very weak just from being in bed for so long um immobile there's people who due to complications they have strokes from covid or brain injuries brain injuries from covid yeah like if uh they didn't get sufficient oxygen to the brain that can cause a brain injury um so there can be all kinds of different medical problems due to, to severe COVID-19. I mean, not to mention just like your lung function, people get heart attacks. So it's a whole range of things. So some people are going to have lasting disability from it or just have a, a long recovery process. And then there's also just aspects of being in the hospital with COVID that are sort of unique with the pandemic and that, you know, people are definitely in the earlier period, you know, you couldn't see your loved ones. Has that changed? It seems like that's changed a little bit. Um, is that just because some of the hospitals aren't overcrowded or is it just because people are know more about how it works and how it's spread? You know, I'm, I'm probably not the best to answer this this question. Um, I mean, I think there was a shortage of personal protective equipment at the beginning. Yeah. That was an issue we didn't understand. Yeah, yeah. You know, there was just different issues. So the just that isolation and loneliness, you know, was is traumatic for people. So, yeah, a lot of times people with severe COVID, you know, if they're on a ventilator and not fully conscious and aware, they could have hallucinations or be very confused. So they might experience the medical staff as being harmful. Um, so they can have traumatic psychological experiences, not just all of the medical problems, too. That's so interesting because nobody ever talks about that. So, you know, part of my job is, is you know, helping people with the recovery and all the, the physical problems they're dealing with, which is similar to how I help other types of patients. But there's definitely tra traumatic aspects of COVID and, and just the I, I've seen people who got COVID at work um, who might not have felt protected or they might have gotten it from a loved one. So there's just all kinds of complex feelings uh, about it. Okay. Let's go a little bit back to some of the stuff happening at work. Do you have advice for a coworker or a boss who sees uh, or their, their fellow coworker? They, they can tell that things are not going well for them psychologically or, or they're, they've suffered trauma or they need to help them somehow deal with it. Well, so some companies have programs like employee assistance programs that are kind of designed to help employees. You know, it provides some limited mental health support. Um, so, I mean, that's a resource at least that some companies have. I mean, I think it's probably tricky if you're an employer or even just a coworker to try to help another worker to get mental health support. I mean, it's going to depend on your relationship with them. Drugs, drugs versus talk therapy. Some people would say that talk therapy isn't going to really change much in certain people. What? Give me your brief take on. My guess is you're going to say, you know, often a, even a combination can be good. Well, um, yes, yeah, some people, they're going to benefit more from a combination of them. Some people aren't going to be open to therapy, but they might be open to medication. Um, and, and for some people, that's enough to help them get through a difficult time, um, or that might be a bridge to them 
trying out therapy if the medication doesn't work well enough. Or some people are only open to therapy but not medication, but they might benefit from medication over time. So that can be something that they work towards. Um, so, I mean, people have their own process. And just because I don't prescribe medications doesn't mean that I don't think they can be helpful. I don't think they're a cure-all. Usually, I mean, sometimes they're they're really crucial for helping someone cope with their psychiatric problem, and they might be crucial to help someone get the most out of therapy. So that you know, they really can work together. It's not a one size fits all thing. I, I don't think talk therapy is the solution to every every problem either. Do you think that a lot of the medication is abused or prescribed poorly? I, I I don't know what the the stats are, but I, I wouldn't assume that most of the medications are abused. I mean, certain medications are more at risk f- for people abusing them, like uh, Zoloft or not Zoloft. Stimulant meds like the ADHD meds can be abused, or opioids, you know, which a lot of people know about the pain, pain meds. Annex. That's what I was thinking. Annex. Xanax. Xanax. Yeah. So that's a benzodiazepine. So like Xanax, Ativan, Valium. Yeah. Those, those have risk for abuse. But, you know, all of those meds have their uses for someone with a certain condition. So, you know, I'm seeing people who are prescribed opioids who might have severe pain problems. And in order to get the most out of their physical therapy sessions, they need, you know, it's most helpful to take an opioid before the session. If they're in too severe of a, of pain, you know, then they, they might only be able to put in 50% effort or they might only, you know, be able to perform for 10 minutes as opposed to an hour session. There's an appropriate way to prescribe those, you know, but those can all be abused if uh, they're not monitored. What do you do, though, if you're trying to see somebody and they're in just so much pain that they're just having trouble focusing? What are some of the methods you use? Well, psychologists have an important role in pain management, and it's something that I work on with a lot of patients. So, I mean, oftentimes patients, they view pain as purely a physical experience that is it's just damage to their tissues or their nerves, that the solution is a, is a medical treatment like a medication or a steroid injection. And so for some people, that's enough to treat their pain. But pain is not just a physical experience. It's also a cognitive experience, emotional, spiritual. So like we know now from research that our emotions can influence the severity of pain. So Negative emotions can heighten, like worsen our experience of pain, and positive emotions can improve it. Um, negative thought processes can heighten our experience of pain, and positive ones can improve it. So that's part of where a psychologist can be involved in, in helping people cope with pain. So um, it's helping people with how they think about pain, understand their feelings about it, and then using interventions like mindfulness, meditation, relaxation techniques are, are important because they can help relax the body and that can provide pain relief. Um, but the meditation can also help uh, help a person to observe their thoughts and feelings about pain and then start to make shifts 
uh, from like a, a really negative thought process about pain into a more positive and realistic thought process. So, so psychology is a really important role in addition to like physical therapy, occupational therapy, you know, and helping people manage pain. So it's really, um, it's a team approach that we have. Do you think most people out there could really benefit from having a therapist? Obviously, some are probably more needing it than others, but it's something everybody should have at least at one point. I think most people could benefit from from therapy. I mean, certain people would fit better with certain kinds of therapy, too. So it's not a one size fits all. People also have certain cultural inclinations to therapy or or hesitancy about therapy. And now I think therapists are more attentive to how culture and race, gender impact people's experience. I don't think everybody needs to be in long-term therapy. I think it's, but I do, I would say this, you know, like everybody knows that they got to attend to their health. You know, that you're supposed to have a physical once a year, that you're supposed to attend to your diet, your sleep, these aspects of physical health. But people neglect that. Well, sure, people neglect that. But I think it's widely accepted. That no, I'm saying people neglect the mental health right. in a way that they don't neglect these other things. I, yeah, I, I don't think there's the same level of acceptance that mental health is something to attend to, whether it's by seeing a therapist or, or just in other ways like good self-care. But I, yeah, I do think everybody needs to attend to their mental health. Right. That makes sense. I mean, the, the person that I interviewed the last podcast, they said, you have a broken leg and you go to the hospital. But if you break something in the inside and psychologically, people just try to walk it off. Well, it's a less tangible thing. It's, it's not necessarily going to be visible to other people. And you can try to pretend it's not there because you can't physically see it. Yeah, I think that there's a tendency for that. I mean, you can do that with medical problems too. That's true. That's true. Uh, just a few other questions. Um, what does the word happiness mean to you or happy? Are you asking if that should be a, a goal for people? No, no. You personally. I think it's a, a sense of contentment and fulfillment, a sense of, of purpose, which I guess is not the same thing as joy necessarily, but but they're connected. I think that most people need a sense of meaning and not just joy. Do you have any other advice for people you feel like needs to be said on this topic? Yeah, I think if you're coping with uh, a major medical problem or coping with some disability I think that it's easy to get discouraged and it can be hard to find value in yourself. So, I mean, this is an important point that I try to make to patients. It's just that um, there are ways that you can find value, even if you have limitations. You know, our culture tends to put the vast majority of its emphasis and value on how much someone can do or produce or achieve it's hard for us to view ourselves in any other light, but I think we all have intrinsic value. And that's, you know, that's one of the reasons that I'm a big proponent of mindfulness, because I think it, it teaches us that kind of self-acceptance outside of what we're doing, what goal we're working on. And it's not that goals are wrong. What is mindfulness? Mindfulness is non-judgmental attention to our present 
experience, so which can sound kind of abstract. It's a way to be without trying to fix or do something in the moment. It's just, it's being accepting and not judgmental of your, your current experience, uh, which is so valuable to people who are in pain and want to feel like their life can't go on until they get to a certain goal, like they're back to walking again or back to work again or back to driving again. So, I mean, this is another important part of the work that I do is helping people continue towards those big goals, but also trying to be in their life right now, even if they're still in the middle of a, of a difficult recovery process. You know, you can still have some downtime. You can still have some pleasure time. You can still interact with your family members. You have value as you are right now. And that's you and and you can still also have those big goals. You can have both. Man, I have to work on that. <laughs> yeah, that's something that that we all need to work on. And I guess the last thing I'll say is, uh, you know, if you're going through a major medical problem, it can just feel like you've had a setback and this isn't going to be helpful to you in any way. But usually the people who cope the best with these situations are people who also find some way to grow out of it. Of course, you've had a setback, but if you can find something that you've learned from this, or if this helps you make some positive changes in your life, then you've grown from the experience. You've also gotten something out of it. Right. It's not, it's not for nothing. Yeah. Everything you said today, that was one that is one of the most important things, I think. Yeah, it can be easier said than done, but but it it can definitely be done. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. 